Hello, and welcome to the Pragmatic Live podcast series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management and product marketing teams with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Calajaris, Vice President of Marketing at Pragmatic Marketing, and your host for this episode. Today, we have one of my favorite guests and one of our very own instructors, Mark Stiving. Now, some of you may have gotten the impression, maybe, that he is a pricing expert, and he is. He's a pricing expert. He's a a pricing aficionado. He loves the topic. And so when it came to putting together this year's annual survey, um, I wanted to do a deep dive into pricing, and who better to partner with that than Mark Stiving? Hi, Mark. Hey, Rebecca. Thanks. I thought you partnered with me just so I would do the work. I no no. <laughs> it's totally because you're super smart on the topic, Mark. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. A little bit of both, right? Yes. So you and I were talking about doing the annual survey. We usually get well, this year. We got 1,700 respondents from all over the world, and we really wanted to take a deeper look at how pricing was being done inside the the enterprise and technology companies that we work with. So the first thing you did was put together a series of questions. How did you decide on this great topic what you would center on? Well, that, that was actually really hard to do. I had a big list of questions, and I was trying to figure out which ones to narrow it down to, how to structure the questions, and you never really know what you're going to get until after we do the survey. Of course, that's why we do the survey. In the end, I, I created two sets of questions. Uh, I really wanted to know, in general, how companies organize or behave. I guess behave is more important to me. How do they behave? Do they use value-based pricing or cost-plus pricing? But the biggest problem in my mind was I didn't know how people would answer that question. If I asked you simply, do you use cost-plus pricing or value-based pricing, the answer is probably yes where you probably do a little bit of both depending on the situation and where we are. And, and so we ended up taking a series of questions and we said, think about the last product you released. For that product, how did you set the price? And we asked the question that way. And now at least we have a specific point in time. It isn't, oh yeah, sometimes we do do value-based pricing or, oh yeah, sometimes we do do cost plus pricing. We're trying to narrow it down to a single instance and say, in this instance, what happened. And I think we got some pretty good results because of that. And can we just level set for our listeners who maybe haven't had the pleasure yet of taking your course? When you say value-based pricing, in a nutshell, what do you mean? In my mind, I always mean charge what the customer is willing to pay. However, that's not possible in reality. So it's usually how do we get closer to how much my customer is willing to pay? And to me, that means we're going to step back and do data or value conversations. We're going to have ways to, to measure willingness to pay from our marketplace. And we're going to use that as the justification for setting our prices, not our costs. Okay. So then when we dug in and asked people about what type of pricing they use, what did you find out? Was there any common denominators when people said that they used value-based pricing? Well, I got to say that my favorite thing – when it comes to doing the analytics and how I did the analytics was I went through and I started to do cross tabs on what I thought were the most interesting variables to be able to predict. And the two variables that I loved, I thought were really good, were value-based pricing 
as one variable. And then the other one, we asked the question, are you a high growth company, a low growth company, a medium growth company? And, and I wanted to know, do high growth companies tend to use value-based pricing? And, and we got some of those answers too. We'll, we'll answer that in a little bit. Well, that's a tease there for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but in the world of value-based pricing, if you use that as the dependent variable on our cross tabs for a second, now what we're going to do is we're going to go down and say, what is it that was significantly correlated with we used value-based pricing? And it turns out there were a lot of really fascinating things that seemed to make sense to me if I were thinking about a company. So first, okay, I have to break the rules. I mean, I have to t tell my secret already. The first one on my list was high growth companies. Do you think in that case, though, how do you know whether it's cause or result? Is it high growth because we do value-based pricing or because we're growing, we feel like we have the luxury to do value-based pricing? It turns out when we do a cross tab, all we see is the correlation. We don't see the causation between the two. It, I would love to be able to say companies that use value-based pricing use high growth, get high growth. Probably not the case, right? It's probably more that high growth companies have more of a tendency to use value-based pricing instead of cost plus pricing. And it wouldn't surprise me if the reason for that has to do with the second thing that's highly correlated with value-based pricing, and that is software. When we ask the question, what kind of products do you make, hardware, software, a combination of the two, services, it turns out most companies that do value-based pricing are software companies. And I would argue most companies that are high-growth companies today are probably software companies. And that makes a lot of sense when we try to understand why value-based pricing. Now the question becomes though, why do software companies use value-based pricing so well? And the reason is they can't use cost plus pricing. Think about pricing a car. Cost plus pricing says we figure out all the cost of the parts and everything that goes into a car. That ended up costing say $10,000. We want a margin, so we charge 12,000, and that was a cost plus. Well, how much cost goes into building the next version of Microsoft Office? Not the development cost, but the shipping, right? How do, getting it to your computer, or adding one more user to Salesforce. What's the cost to that? It's pretty much nothing. And what that means is they can't use cost plus pricing. They really have to, to start thinking in terms of value. So it wasn't necessarily that they're better or smarter. It's a necessity. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> now that half our audience is turned off. but <laughs> right. So you saw four people thought you were smarter, but uh, right. no, it's true. I, I think, and I've said this many times before, in the world of pricing, software people have this advantage. Because of the fact they don't have costs, they have to find a different way to do pricing if they plan on making any money. And, and it almost forces them into this value-based pricing mindset, which is really nice. So within these companies that are doing value-based pricing, who's leading the charge? Oh, in terms of the people? Yeah, it seems like it's going to be the, the people who are doing the pricing are either product managers product marketing managers, or a pricing team. 
and the opposite of this. So, so if you wanted to see companies that were doing cost plus or not value-based pricing, what was highly correlated with those was people that let finance or executive set pricing. And, and that makes all the sense in the world. If you're going to let finance set pricing, pretty much the only way they could set price is cost plus because they don't understand the value in the marketplace. And when we go to value-based companies, who does understand the value in the marketplace? What's well, going to be product managers and product marketing managers? It makes all the sense in the world that those are the people who are going to be setting the prices then. And let, I mean, when we say, you know, you let finance do it, it's not that necessarily the people listening have those options or they would take it perhaps. But I also think that sometimes, you know, finance may lead it, but we abdicate it fully and we don't provide the insights and knowledge that we could. So even if finance is going to set the final price, part of our role in the product team is to influence that price by providing the type of information that you're talking about, about value-based pricing. You know, Rebecca, I don't know if I've ever disagreed with you on a podcast before. Oh, <laughs> bring we, it. Can we, can, we, <laughs> can we make this the first time? Sure. Um, I, I would much rather see it go the opposite way. I love finance being involved with pricing in the sense that they can tell us what the margin floor is that we need to, to make the investors happy. They can run reports. They can do tons of monitoring for us. There's so much they can do. But I would rather see finance informing the product team about here's what's going on and here's what the rules are. Here's what we have to reach and let the product team then say, yeah, I got it. Now let me set price based on how much my market's willing to pay. And I find it really hard for product managers to go to finance and say, here's how much our market's willing to pay and have finance truly get that. Not, not that finance people aren't smart. That's just not what they're focused on. They're focused on our internal numbers. What do we have to hit? So the good news is I actually don't think you disagree with me. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. No, because I agree with you. That's ideal. But I do think there are situations, and certainly we hear it from our listeners sometimes, where we, we talk about the ideal state, and they think in, in their current role, they don't have enough control over that. They can't yank it from finance. In their company today, finance owns pricing, and they don't have, let's say, the political clout to change that. But that, all I was saying is that in that situation, it doesn't mean – it doesn't erase what is our responsibility to still give to the company what is the market's willingness to pay. Ideally, we own it, but just if we don't do that and we can't make that switch today, we still have a responsibility to deliver that piece. And and I would say that if we did that, let's say that as a product manager, I, we could go to finance and we could say, hey, you know, this product line, we could get a higher margin for it than we do on any other product line. Finance would listen to that, right? They would care. Mm-hmm. And that would be a really good thing for us to share. Yes. So see, you don't disagree with me, Mark. <laughs> so glad to hear that. All right. Woo. All right. So generally when we see it, it's software. High growth companies, generally the product teams are driving that or the pricing teams. What yeah. else? What else do these value-based pricing gurus have in common? Well, one of the, one of the concepts we teach in our class has to do with compliments and once we get somebody on our platform, do we sell them more things? And when we sell them more things, those should be at higher margins. One of the questions we asked is, do you offer add-ons at higher margins? And people who do that are also highly correlated with people who use value-based pricing. Mm-hmm. 
Now, again, there is no cause and effect. But what it does say is that these people that are thinking about value are suddenly thinking, oh, wait, I could also sell this to somebody and get a higher price, a higher margin, because I don't really have competition or there's less competition. They already like us. For whatever reason, we can get more for that. People are willing to pay more. That's ideal thinking. That's exactly what we want. Awesome. And I think one of the other things I know you found in the survey that didn't surprise me is that if you have value-based pricing, those organizations were more likely to revisit the list price at least once a year. Sure, right? Because markets change, perceptions change, competitors change. And, and we really have to revisit that list price. And I thought that was nice to see that they confessed to that or said, well, we're going to do that. And it's important. I mean, it can, you have to proactively look for those changes. You know, when your costs change, that's something very visible with inside the organization. But those market mood shifts can sometimes take a little bit more of an overt look. So I, I can see why those two are tied together. Yep. Yep. The other one that I found interesting is it's almost always premium companies, premium priced or at least mid-level price companies, but it's never discount price companies. Now, maybe never was an exaggeration, but not likely to be. And doesn't that suddenly make a lot of sense too? Because a discount price company is trying to price as low as they possibly can to win the business. And what's the floor of how low they can go? Their costs. A discount price company then is going to end up being more likely to use cost plus than they would trying to say, what's my market willing to pay? Did you happen to find any correlation between use of value-based pricing and discounts within the sales team? Uh, so we did ask the question, Do your, does your sales team discount too often? And I think that came out to be non-significant because it's not on my notes here. Okay. And so I think that was not a significant differentiator for them. Yes, that makes sense. I would be hopeful that by understanding you understanding the market and then the salespeople understanding what you based your pricing on, that that could have an influence. But okay. Yep, that one that one didn't seem to have an impact. Okay, all right. So we talked about the discoveries about value based pricing in the survey. Uh, what else? What else really stood out for you as a topic? If we go back to how did we set up the questions originally? One of the things that you and I sat and talked about was we said, well, what what are we trying to predict? Right. What's the dependent variable that makes sense? And to me, the thing that made sense was let's talk about growth. How fast is the company growing? Um, is that something that pricing is really going to have an impact on? We asked the question about growth rate, and I was fascinated to see what were the answers for the types of companies or decisions or pricing decisions that those people made that were different than other types of companies. That does sound interesting. So can you give us some of these? Or are you going to just keep this a secret too? <laughs> it's like, wait, tune in next week. No. What did we, what did we learn about high growth rate companies? Uh, what kind of attributes can we, can we glean from there? We already talked about the fact that it was software, mostly software-based companies. Um, we also found that revenue-wise, it was in the 11 to $50 million range when we asked people their revenue, how big the company was. And in a way, that kind of makes sense, although I was surprised not to see more smaller companies in there. Um, it, it doesn't surprise me to not see really big companies because it's hard to be a big company and have a high growth rate. 
but it did surprise me that we didn't have sm- more smaller companies in there. That's interesting. When you think of if you're small, doubling in size is usually seems more attainable, but maybe they don't, maybe they weren't as selective. Or maybe they don't consider themselves a high growth company when they answer the question or. To be fair, and the percentage of our respondents overall that were in a smaller size company is significantly smaller portion. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it wasn't that. What else? It wasn't that. Uh, we did get the type of product and they claimed to use value-based pricing. We already talked about that in the last one. I this fourth, The next one that we're going to talk about I found fascinating. We asked the question, what gets in your way of setting prices? And in many companies, especially in big companies, we've put in a pricing system, we put in a set of processes, and now somebody wants to go change something, whether they want to change a price or we want to do price segmentation or we want to charge different prices in different regions or volume-based pricing. No matter what it is we want to do, the system doesn't let us do that. And what I found fascinating is these companies with a high growth rate, they answered they don't see any of those limitations. The company has doesn't say to them all the time, oh, no, no, we can't do that because the systems get in our way. I, I find that fascinating. I don't, I don't know if you relate to that at all. <laughs> I might have been somewhere before where that, no. I mean, it is a, an issue, and, and it's uh, one of the things you talk a lot about with pricing is is different packaging and different testing things. And so if your system isn't as fluid um, or as flexible, it's hard to test things. And then if you don't get to test and you just have to like commit, you, you almost get into paralysis because you're like, well, what we're doing is not broken. And since I can't test to figure out for sure what it is that drives it, I'm just going to keep it the same. Yeah. Right. And that's a hard place to be. And it's so hard to go test something if the system doesn't let you. Now we have to put a manual process in place that's going to break a whole bunch of other things. And, oh, let's just not mess with that. Right. And then you think, does the manual part, does it sort of uh, cloud the results and give us false positives or false negatives? And it's 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 much harder to to really use the pricing lever to its full advantage. Yes. So I was thrilled when I saw that that those companies didn't see the limitations. I was uh, and I guess I would have predicted it had I thought about it, Mm -hmm. but I hadn't. Right. Awesome. Mm -hmm. What else? Was there anything else about these high growth Uh, companies? A couple more things that I found really interesting. Uh, They have a systematic process to monitor their competitors' pricing. I did this at a company that I was at before I joined Pragmatic, and we had put together a system where once a month we would go out and scrape prices off the websites of not our competitors but of our distributors because they also sold our competitors' products. And we could see all of the pricing that was going on. We got to see if our competitors were changing prices, um, what was happening in that whole space. It was fascinating and truly beneficial. These types of companies have put together some process to say, yep, we know what our competitors are doing. Now we can respond intelligently. Not And, and by the way, they can also predict what their competitors are doing. Okay, okay. Hold that thought. We'll be right back after this. Hello, Pragmatic Live listeners. Did you know that we have helped more than 8,000 companies worldwide with our proven methodology and framework? To put the Pragmatic Marketing Framework to work for your organization, visit pragmaticmarketing.com slash buy. All right, let's get back to the podcast. 
And I think this one's important because I know, having been in your course, that you don't suggest that we take, we price just based on what our competitors do. So they're not using it in that way. How is this competitive information being used to influence the price? How do you put that in perspective with the rest of the information for value-based pricing? In its simplest form, let's say that we have uh, one of our products and one of our competitors' products. Our product is better than our competitors, of course. Of course. How much, how much better is it? Well, let's say it's 20% better. Our competitors charging $10, we get to charge $12 because our product is 20% better. But what happens if our competitor lowers their price to $8? If we don't know that, we're now charging 20, uh, okay, I don't want to do the math. What is that, 40 out of 80? 50% 50 more than our competitors do, even though our product is only 20% as good. We're suddenly not going to win very many deals. We need to be able to watch our competitors and see what they're doing. That gives us the opportunity to respond. Doesn't mean that we're matching them, but we have to price relative to them if our buyers are making decisions about our product relative to our competitors' products. So it could give you a signal either that you are high or low, right? If they raise their yeah. prices, but they haven't really increased the value that they bring um, relative to you, of course, then you have a chance to raise your own prices with very little risk. Absolutely. When we teach competitive issues in pricing, one of the things I like to emphasize is if your competitors raise their price, don't take that as an opportunity to steal their share. Raise your price. Mm -hmm. If you just take it as an opportunity to steal their share, they're probably just going to bring their price back down. They're signaling to you, we want to raise prices. Raise your price. I feel like the airlines have this particular <laughs> <laughs> do you think do you think they care close i'm pretty sure they're in this uh, closely monitored competitor pricing <laughs> aspect not not only do they see instantly when a competitor changes their price but they also announce weeks months in advance have you ever seen the announcements on the in the trade magazines that say something like in december delta airlines is going to raise their prices by 10 percent on this this and this what they just said was hey all of our competitors we want you to do the same thing because if you don't we're we didn't really mean it and this this whole idea of watching what our competitors do, it gives us the ability to respond and it gives us the ability to, you know, if we're going to play competitive games, it gives us the ability to punish our competitors when they do something stupid. I like it. You get so emotional with your language when it comes to competitors. <laughs> punish them. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel, Mark. <laughs> okay. The last one, though, I want to bring up when it comes to high growth rate companies, yes. they trust their sales force. Mm. Mm -hmm. I did ask the question, or we did ask the question, because I didn't ask any of them. Uh, we did ask the question, does your sales force offer discounts, uh, too many discounts, not enough discounts, or are they discounting at just about the right level? The three bears and, question. Mm -hmm. Yes, the three bears question. And they thought that their sales force were doing the right thing. Nice. Which was very nice. 
Yeah. Now, does that mean that good sales forces help companies grow fast? I'm going to go with yes. <laughs> <laughs> just, just to be clear, my answer is yes. Okay. <laughs> but I also think, um, I th so there's not only, there is the sales team understanding why we're priced a certain way, but it is a huge, if you have confidence in your sales team and what they're doing, then the feedback that they bring into that process is also very valuable. If you're, if you don't think they're paying attention or if they're not, as qualified as you think they should be, then when they give back pricing feedback, it's, it's you know, maybe more difficult to fold in. But when you really trust your sales team, the insights they can give on pricing feedback, particularly as it relates to various segments, I think can be really powerful. I, I agree 100%. That's awesome. Yes. That's awesome. Do we have enough time to whip through one more really fast? We sure do. Excellent. The other one that I found that I found interesting was the fact that the price went up at release. We asked the question, you, if you had a price in a business plan and then you release the product, did you charge a higher price than your business plan, a lower price than your business plan, or the same price as was in your business plan? And I thought that was interesting just to see how well people could predict their prices for what was in the plan versus when we go release the product. And I thought this one was super fascinating too, because I, part of me was like, is that just a tax you put on your price when you release it because you're so exhausted from all the work that went in, right? <laughs> like, you're just like, I don't know, but if I went through all that, it better be worth at least X. Or what along the way was it that informed them that there was actually room for them to increase? Yes, yes. So some of the things that really drove up or drove this decision or I should say we're correlated with this. First off, we're hardware products and that makes all the sense in the world to me because we sit back and we put together a business plan and we say, here's what the cost of goods sold is going to be. We get through the design, we missed it, right? Costs ended up being higher. Costs ended up being higher because most hardware companies are doing cost plus pricing. What do they do to the price when they release it? They raise the price. So many things there that just caused me consternation because it was you who said them, right? You were like, <laughs> their costs went up, so I increased, they increased price. And I was like, wait, no, no, <laughs> that's not I, what Mark taught me. I am so glad that you <laughs> caught that. But what I, what I did say is because they use cost plus pricing, hardware companies tend to use cost plus pricing. It is really hard for hardware companies to get away from cost plus. I wrote a blog about this. I don't think we've posted it quite yet, um, but it has to do with the way hardware companies do accounting and software companies do accounting. And I think that hardware companies would do themselves a huge service to do the bad accounting that software companies do. And they would end up being able to do value-based pricing and get much higher margins for their products. Uh, but ever since the beginning of hardware production, People have said, hey, we've got a price relative to our costs, and it's just in their mindset. It, it is stuck in their mind. If you want any evidence of this, go to any hardware company you know, and they've decided they're going to release a new software product. They actually put a price on the software product. We're trying to sell it, and the salespeople inevitably give it away because it has no value. In truth, it had no cost. And the hardware companies just think that way. And, and they've got to find a way to get out of that mentality. I do want to point out for the end of this podcast that we both like finance and accounting and hardware companies. 
help them. None of them were harmed in the making of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what else? Okay, so hardware companies were more often those who had the price increase at the release. What else? What other factors? And that was also correlated with cost plus pricing. And so that makes sense because we're doing cost plus. Uh, it turned out premium priced companies had prices go up. And in my mind, here's what I'm picturing. I don't know if this is true or not, but I'm picturing the CEO of the company saying, you know what, we're about to release that, but I think we could get more for it. Let's raise the price. Ah. <laughs> and I think that would be awesome if that were the justification for that. Is it just sort of brand equity? I, I think we can get away with it. It could be brand. It could just be he's got more value. I find it interesting that oftentimes people undervalue their products, their services. And, and it isn't clear to me why that happens. But sometimes the CEO can step up and say, hey, we're worth it. We're XYZ. Let's charge more. And you could certainly picture a CEO doing that, couldn't yeah. you? And you're, to your point, it, it could just be a step back. It makes a ton of sense with a better understanding and a better view and a little distance who can go, no, nope, you're missing the big picture and what this will bring. Those were the ones that I found most fascinating in there. There were a couple others that were correlated, but they weren't that interesting to talk about. But they'd be really interesting to read in the survey. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the fact that they set the price before they did the design kind of makes sense. Um, they also do systematic monitoring of competition. That may mean the competition raised their prices before we released, and so we're going to raise our prices. Or that the competition doesn't have what we this feature, and so we can more clearly see it as a differentiator. Okay, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, they revisit their price once a year or more. So... Mark, a lot of the things we talked about in the survey, when we talked about value-based pricing and high growth rates and, and that the prices went up after releases in those areas, you were like, okay, that makes sense. If I'd thought about it ahead of time, this is what I would have, would have been your hypothesis at least. Was there anything in the survey that just straight out surprised you? I have to say no, but the only reason is I didn't go in with a set of expectations of this is what I'm expecting to see. What I did was after I saw the results, I said, could I explain that result? And, and I didn't find anything that didn't make sense in terms of could we explain that or not explain that. Uh, I certainly wouldn't have predict oh, I certainly wouldn't have predicted that high growth companies were 11 to 50 million dollars in size. right And it did surprise me a little bit that we didn't have some small growth companies in there or that that wasn't correlated. but you, you think about it and maybe we could explain that. All right, Mark. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, it was my pleasure as always. And for people who want to download the latest copy of the survey, they can go to pragmaticmarketing.com slash survey. Uh, and if you have questions or if you want to dig in a little bit more about what the details of that survey show about pricing or about your specific industry, we are always happy to get those as well at experts at pragmaticmarketing.com. That does it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career.